0: Hey, this is Kion Wolf. I'm here with Betsy Kaplan in your podcast feed saying thanks for tuning in, first of all. And please keep this podcast going by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to wnpr.org slash donate. That's the place where you become a member or you renew your membership. And most importantly, you keep us going.
1: And we can't do this without you. Kyron and I, along with the the rest of our team, put on the Colin McEnroe Show every day of the week for you because we love to do this for you, and we love the show as well. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online at wnpr.org. Enjoy the show.
2: (laughs) I'm laughing because we're still trying to sort of figure out the overarching structure of the show right now. And the show's on the air, but that's... Very much the way that we operate here. It's worked worked so far, right? So uh, today we are going to at least begin by talking about, well, let me back up and say that for years and years and years and years, what we did after every Super Bowl was we would have a bunch of people from advertising, from the world of advertising, really good people from the world of advertising on to analyze the previous Night's commercials, but I think we've run into two problems with that idea. One of them is that people don't wait to see everybody's already seen the commercials by the time the Super Bowl starts, many of them. And I don't think the Super the Super Bowl commercials make quite the splash in the American Zeitgeist that they used to. I could be wrong about that. So we decided instead, what if we just waited to see what the Super Bowl did? collectively, I mean, as a thing, as a gestalt, uh, and and then talked about it with somebody who we like talking to. And so we certainly got the latter thing. Brian Curtis is joining us, editor-at-large for The Ringer, host of the Press Box podcast, which you should be podcasting on your podcasting thing. You should subscribe to it, is what I'm saying. Uh, and uh, somebody who's been on this show many times and uh, likes to do the kind of crossover sports-to-culture stuff that we like to do when we talk about sports. So that's what we're going to do at least for a while. We're going to talk about what it all added up to, although that turned out to be kind of a bad plan if you think it really didn't add up to anything, which is certainly one of the, you know, talking points uh, in America today. So, Brian, welcome back.
3: It all feels very meta because I'm trying to figure out the overarching structure of the Super Bowl itself.
2: Right. You know, because from last night,
3: it was it was weird.
2: Right and I I actually do I have an Uber theme but I don't want to break it out for a while because first of all you're the guest and you're the you you, you bring the ruckus with the themes. So uh I, but but would we start out by saying that the Super Bowl as a whole last night added up to less than Super Bowls typically do or do you not grant that premise?
3: No, I do grant that premise. I think because it added up to less points than any Super Bowl has ever had. Mm-hmm. As much as you know we can put on our uh, you know, Bear Bryant, uh, check the cap or whatever and get on television and, and, or on Twitter and say, you know, this was you really can appreciate the defense and the schematic things that Bill Belichick was doing last night. I just I think football revolves around offense and it was boring and it did let, it add up to less than we're perhaps used to.
2: Right. And I mean, uh, it has been pointed out to us by our uh, grumpy producer Jonathan mcnichol that in the 80s there are all these blowout Super Bowls that they were 55 to 10 and 42 to 10 and 39 to 20 and that last night one could at least gin up a certain amount of tension about how things were going to turn out. But Brian, I feel like that tension is predicated on one's having stayed attentively involved <laughs> in what what, <laughs> what you were watching.
3: Yeah, I'm usually reaching for another beer in the Super Bowl. I felt like I was just working out the Kurg machine last night. You know, by the the third quarter, to me, and I don't know, it's when the Rams uh, finally scored to tie the game. But that that just it almost just didn't exist. I sort of looked up and I was
0: like,
2: right. Oh my
3: gosh, we're going to the fourth quarter. What happened?
2: Right. Either either you on your couch or the Super Bowl on your screen was beginning to fade out like a ghost in a movie or something. It was like sort of getting less and less tangible. So um, uh, I also felt as though I, I knew that it had not been an, event, an eventful Super Bowl where because during the post-game interview, there was a brief period of time where I thought something really terrible was going to happen to Tracy Wilson uh, cause, who you've interviewed and uh, we're going to come to that in just a second. But uh, And I thought, that could be the big story. To, if, if Tracy Wilson is Crushed by cameras or whatever, I just could hear her kind of yelping and and trying to maintain her position in this horrible scrum. I thought, well, that would be the big story the next day
3: yeah we couldn't we couldn't see her. We saw this funny overhead shot of the all the players milling around the field after the game, and Tracy wilson's her disembodied voice saying, "And now Tom Brady is embracing Julian Edelman, yeah. and now he's embracing the Pope, and now he's embracing uh, the ghost of Andy Warhol." You know, mm-hmm. just I mean, it was just this long, this long thing, and I felt terrible for her because her job is to get Tom Brady after the game, and Tom Brady seemed to have very little interest in being gotten, right? Uh, and also was being, you know, surrounded as you might imagine after a Super Bowl by like a thousand people. But we finally got you know, the 10 or 20 cliches we needed out of Tom Brady.
2: Right. But, Uh, I mean, there was sort of this period of time where I don't know whether it was Brady or some other people were saying, be careful, be careful. You know, that's another human being or something. Maybe he didn't (laughs) say that part. But um, I just thought, yeah, this overhead shot is going to turn out to be the Zapruder film where we sort of figure out what happened to Tracy and why she's not with us anymore. Well, you know, since we're talking about Tracy Wilson, who we should say is kind of a sideline slash postgame reporter, we should talk a little bit. I mean, I think there are several people who tried to save last night for us. Uh, One of them was Big Boy. One of them was Gladys Knight. But, I mean, the person who tried the hardest— and came the closest to saving last night was Tony Romo, about whom you have written. And let me just say for the benefit of uh, listeners of ours who don't really follow this kind of thing, Tony Romo is a former uh, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys who has made a very, by most accounts, successful transition to being uh, a TV football analyst. Uh, And Brian has written a really interesting piece about this, in which the first thing that you argue is that everything that went wrong for Tony Romo as a quarterback seems to go right for him as a TV. The analyst
3: yeah and I thought that was kind of the undercurrent of the Super Bowl is finally Tony Romo is in the big game because mm-hmm. he didn't get really close to that as quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys but he's finally there and it's almost like you know as a quarterback he couldn't do anything right after a certain point he was obviously good he was obviously a Pro Bowl guy had a ton of yards and won a lot of games for the Cowboys but he was always seen as kind of defective compared to your Peyton Mannings and, and of course Tom Brady's of the world then we put him in the broadcast booth, and all of a sudden he is the platonic ideal of an NFL color analyst, invoking you know, comparisons to John Madden and Don Meredith and those kind of guys, the kind of hallowed uh, you know, broadcasters of yore. And you're right. He really did try to save that game because he's got one kind of emotional register, which is giddy, boyish excitement. And you show Tony Romo a 3 nothing football game, and Tony Romo is still excited. He really is. And he was, you know, when the Rams tied up, we got a football game, Jim. We got a football game, you know. Uh, and the rest of us are going, wait, should we be excited? Is this is this a good thing? But um, you're right. I think he got us kind of halfway there if he couldn't ultimately make up for, you know, what a terrible game it was.
2: Actually, somebody, uh, this is, last night was the kind of night that has – really sparked a lot of creativity among people on social media and elsewhere, just thinking about things that could have happened as opposed to what did happen. What did happen being latently unsatisfactory. So um, so one person, uh, Carmen de la Pietra, she give her full credit for this because this is really smart. She came up with this idea that what they should do to benefit both the Super Bowl and the Oscars is that the halftime show should be performances of all the Oscar nominated best songs. And mm-hmm. then at the Oscars they would play 60 seconds each of those live Super Bowl performances as they were introducing those songs as not and I responded to her on social media, and Tony Romo would host the Oscars, and she snapped right back. And he would say who was going to win right as the envelope was before it was being announced. Because <laughs> that's another thing that Tony Romo does kind of uncannily, right? He knows what's going to happen just seconds before anything does happen.
3: Yeah, he calls it his parlor trick. Yeah. But it's kind, of, it's kind of taken him from this world of sports media stuff that people like me care about, and into the kind of pop culture consciousness, right? The Wall Street Journal did a piece the other day saying so he got sixty eight percent of his predictions this year right. And, you know, it has made him into kind of like a combination of, you know, Don Meredith and Karnak the Magnificent. Like he can he can really look at a football field and tell us with reasonable certainty what's gonna happen. It's pretty cool.
2: It is cool because, I mean, for people who don't follow football all that much, I don't know if it's clear how much effort goes in by both the offense and the defense to disguising what is about to happen. You know, so much so that quarterbacks like Tony Romo uh, develop like these little things where they can actually see something a defensive back does, the way he angles his shoulders or plants his feet right before the snap that's that's a tell, that's an unconscious giveaway about whether he's in zone uh, or or man. And, you know, they'll never tell anybody, but they actually— pretty well know what that guy's going to do but for most of the time football is uh a world of disguise and tony romo is able to penetrate it
3: yeah and there's all these great conspiracy theories you know oh he's listening to a headset mm-hmm. uh and he can hear the offensive coordinator's voice in his head and that's why he knows what's going to happen or you know he has access to some special tapes like no no he just watches what everybody else with the defensive coordinator watches and he's, you know, sometimes able to divine what happens more than even the coaches on the field. It's incredible.
2: I, I think also, and I know you interviewed a lot of the people connected with all this. Uh, you interviewed Jim, Jim Nance. and. Uh, Jim Nance lives in Connecticut, so I have to be careful what I say. But Jim Nance always strikes me as kind of the supremely corporate announcer, that he's basically, you know, what CBS whatever the CBS corporate line is about anything that's happening, he's unlikely to deviate from it very much. Whereas I think Tony Romo, he says the first thing that comes into his head. Uh, and I feel like, you know, you suggested and even Nance suggested that Tony Romo has been kind of good for Jim Nance.
3: Yeah, it's literally impossible to imagine Jim Nance having a network moment on, you know, a networking movie moment on <laughs> network television. It's just not going to happen ever. But one thing he told me this week in Atlanta that I thought was fascinating is he's like, I just try to match the vibe of whoever I'm sitting next to. So if it's the NCAA tournament and it's Bill Raftery, you know, who's kind of a Catskills comedian, then I'm going there. And if it's, Augusta and grandeur, and you know, that kind of thing. Then I'm going there, and you know, for a long time, he was sitting next to Phil Sims, which sounded like he was just taking a ton of tranquilizers because mm. he was sort of coming down to that level. But now he's got smiling Tony Romo next to him, and he seems bouncy and he seems fun. And as you say, he doesn't seem corporate anymore, he seems like he's having a good time in there.
2: Well, he doesn't and that's seem,
3: really helped a lot,
2: he doesn't seem as corporate. He granted. granted. <laughs> I'm not giving him a get out of corporation free <laughs> card on my Monopoly board. So um, so yeah, I, I think there is I mean, there can be kind of a magic uh, that happens with these really good announcers. I mean, I can name my four or five favorite Don Meredith moments and and my absolute favorite John Madden, P- Pat Sumrall moment. I might have even said this to you on a previous occasion. Uh, they were doing a game. Let's say it was a Cowboys game. The game was almost over. It was being played in Dallas. Uh, the Cowboys were Up by you know six, seven, eight points, uh, and they were beginning to run down the clock, and the fans were boo. There were a lot of fans booing, and and. And Madden, being kind of this football innocent, was going, oh, that's just amazing. They must just really want to see one more touchdown. They love their team so much. They, they just want to see one more touchdown. And finally Summerall paused and said, John, I believe some of the fans may have placed a wager that involved the point spread. Um, and then Madden went, you know, I just never think of things like that. And there's a little bit of that with Romo, too. He's kind of like a kid who's like at his first NFL game in a way. He's just so excited to be there.
3: Yeah, I don't know if you saw this, if you were lucky enough to catch a little documentary on the CBS pregame show called Tony Goes to the Super Bowl. But that was very much the vibe of it. You know, Tony's smiling as he gets to meet Tom Brady and Ben Roethlisberger. And you're like, no, no, you were one of those guys until like five minutes ago. And I imagine it's fun to talk to Tom Brady, but you were the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Let's not forget about that. but. That innocence and that sort of innocent love of football is what carries him along.
2: And we we should say, I I would say that last night he had, he may have had several good moments, but the one that to me just seemed incredibly special was there was a moment, I can't even remember which quarterback was audibilizing, but whichever team it was, part of their audibles appeared to be the name Reagan. They had Reagan, Reagan a couple of times, and Tony's hearing it and going, Reagan? Is that part of their audible? And then they run the play, and Tony goes, oh, they ran right. Yeah, obviously, that's Reagan. And I thought, wow, that's that's a level of facility that you don't necessarily hear with a lot of football analysts.
3: Yeah, I don't know what the Vegas line on Tony Romo being able to hear the name Reagan and, and coming up with run to the right, uh, but I imagine the odds were pretty long, and I would have be, bet no on that one. So, point to him for that.
2: So, um, uh, we should, actually, what we should do is take a little break right now. We'll come back with a little bit more Brian Curtis. Uh, we want to talk some about, about some of the surrounding features uh, of the football game because, and I will then introduce at that point my overarching theory, which Brian is certainly welcome to, to steal for his writing, too. All right, let's do that.
1: We're so bad, we know we're good.
2: All right. Uh, I am back. Uh, We are talking about the Super Bowl uh, with Brian Curtis, editor at large for The Ringer and the host of the Press Box podcast, uh, which you should check out and then subscribe to and all that kind of stuff. So, um, first of all, I have to say, Brian, uh, just as a point of record, uh, Betsy Kaplan, the producer of this particular episode, thought that Tony Romo talked too much. Uh, And (laughs) I feel like I have to make note of that because it's also her birthday, so her opinion has more weight. so there you go. Um, so I'm going to give you my theory now, and then you can either shoot it out of the sky or do something else with it. So my okay. my theory, here's my uber theory. My theory is that when a Super Bowl doesn't really do what we want it to do, we become aware of what we actually want it, it to do. So the the relative emptiness of this particular Super Bowl was sort of a reminder that it has become this nearly essential mid to late winter ritual right alongside groundhog day i don't think it's any coincidence the the juxtaposition and we sort of rely on it at this point of the year to get people together in a warm space to eat food that's not really that good for them but they they have a free pass to eat it anyway cuz it's the super bowl and and it's you know a sense—it's very close to the State of the Union address. So it also, I think, is meant to provide us with some kind of relief from whatever anxieties we might be having uh, in the world. There's pageantry, fancy ads, unpredictability, and and so when it isn't that, even though we kind of sneer at the Super Bowl a little bit most years, I was aware, keenly aware last night, that I needed from something from the Super Bowl that it didn't give me. All right, that's my Uber theory.
3: No, and I like that. I think we may even lean into that Uber theory a little more now that there are fewer and fewer uh, sort of universal media moments in American life, right, where we can really do that. And even the Super Bowl is that kind of moment. Is diminished, right? It's never going to be what it was in the '70s and early '80s, where you had, you know, something like 100% tune-in. Somebody out there is watching, was watching Netflix last night. You know, I think my mom might have been watching a British murder mystery on Netflix actually during that game last night. But um, yeah, and I think that is part of it is that we feel somehow, as media consumers, we feel conscious of the fact that these kind of universal things are slipping away from us. And that we don't, you know, the Oscars is smaller, the Super Bowl is smaller, the World Series is certainly smaller. So we we sort of like it when we can all be, you know, watching together on Twitter, together on whatever social media venue we are. I will say maybe a corollary is, is that the Super Bowl halftime show has actually never been what we need it to be, as no. far as I can tell from the Twitter reaction. And it certainly wasn't last night, uh, maybe big boy aside, because all I saw about that were jokes, right. <laughs> not nice jokes. So maybe that's the corollary to your rule.
2: Well, yes, and I did feel as though, you know, at the time of the famous Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake incident, I I thought, well, you really had to almost slow that whole thing down or something to even see what is alleged to happen. It went by very fast. I certainly didn't notice it at the time, although I was watching this halftime show and blah, blah, blah. Whereas I felt assaulted by Adam Levine's nipples last night. I felt (laughs) I felt stalked by them. (laughs) <laughs> like you really couldn't get away from Adam Levine's nipples without leaving the room, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. There was a, there was something unnerving. Yeah, it makes us all kind of into you know reactionaries. I think is Adam Levine taking his shirt off for sure. Right.
2: By the way, we've done some. Uh, our research department has confirmed your mother was watching Marcella, which is a uh, British <laughs> Netflix. Uh... And it involved a country house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree that. Um, I know. Was it Hank Aaron who said, uh, "The older I get, the better I used to be," uh, and and there's a little bit about that with this halftime show. The truth is, yes, most people every year kvetch about the halftime show it's, it's as though it really represented some new effrontery. And I think the case could be made last night that they're actually right. But most years, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. The year before, it wasn't like the Who was that like that great? I don't know. I mean, everybody agrees that Prince in the Rain was terrific, and then after that, mm-hmm. it's you know, and and Springsteen. Kind of, I think one of the things that it needs to, the halftime show needs to do is produce, produce some kind of moment. You know, I, uh, ideally not one that results in a $500,000 FCC fine, but, you know, Springsteen <laughs> like knee sliding towards the camera and kind of whacking into it or just, or, you know, Beyonce kind of debuting the whole lemonade thing, even though Coldplay is nominally the headline act or it needs something. Yeah. And I just like, even that anomalous and Possibly objectionable thing wasn't there last night, except for the whole thing being objectionable.
3: Yeah, maybe add Bono's uh, American flag lining of his sports coat uh, <laughs> yeah. to
2: the uh, to the litany,
3: right? That was right after 9-11, if I'm remembering right. my Super Bowl halftime shows. Yeah, I mean, it's just hard to do this in, a, in an iTunes world, right? It's just there's less there. You know, top 40 is less of a thing in our lives than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Right. So, one, you had to find an act that was not mad enough about Colin Kaepernick's exclusion from the league to actually show up last night, and then you had to find (laughs) from that smaller set an act that was big enough to hold everybody's attention.
2: That makes me think there might be another uber Uber narrative, or uber Meredith from last night, but um, (laughs) no, an uber narrative last night, and that would be the curse of Kaepernick, really. You know, I mean, people have talked about the Red Sox and the curse of the Bambino and stuff all these years, but now you have a league that may have committed this really kind of primal sin uh, that a huge part of its, you know, putative fan base won't forgive it for. And that kind of kneecaps a whole bunch of other things, including the halftime show. Yeah, halftime halftime show's notable for the number of people like Cardi B who just wouldn't do it. You know, Rihanna wouldn't do it. So, like, if the first thing you know about the halftime show is all the people who won't do it, you've got a problem.
3: Yeah, I and mean, because I was at Roger Goodell's press conference this week in Atlanta, which is kind of the— It was near Groundhog Day, and that is appropriate because it is the one time all year when he kind of comes uh, above ground and shows his (laughs) face and actually has to answer questions. And of course, Kaepernick came up a couple of times in relation to what you just said about the halftime show. And his answer was, you know, I leave, uh, who gets signed, and those matters to the teams. And in fact, the word he uses, we take pride in the fact that teams get to decide who they sign and the players Uh, the, excuse me, the league office doesn't take a role in that. And, you know, there are kinds of all kinds of weird and sort of icky, uh, you know, things you could kind of come up with historically about we're deferring to the, you know, so-and-sos to make decisions like this. But also, I just think the lack of really addressing it and just pretending that a mere personnel decision, that the 32 teams have all come to the same exact uh, non, you know, amoral personnel decision about this. This doesn't exist. That is also very frustrating for some
2: of us. Well, it's also a little bit like President Trump saying that he takes pride in letting Russian hackers and Putin have a lot of independence about what they do. You know, he doesn't really try <laughs> to tell them what to do. I mean, I mean, Goodell, as a legal matter, kind of has to take that position right now, that there's no collusion, that there's no there's no organized attempt to keep Although I keep coming back to, and listeners of the show have heard me complain about this before, if, if you didn't believe in collusion to keep Kaepernick out before this, the moment this year where I think the Redskins, the team whose name should never be said, had gone through three quarterbacks, losing one of them in a horrific injury, and then like losing two more of them very quickly, and they signed a guy— off the street who li- who said he actually said that he'd ha- played Madden for a few days just to sort of get the numbers and the names <laughs> straight that that was part of his preparation is to get uh, this, this year's edition of Madden so you want that guy instead of Kaepernick I mean at this point I don't think we're fooling anybody
3: no no and I, I mean unless the NFL is attempting a amazing cross-branding promotion with esports I don't believe we are. Yeah, I don't believe that is an actual quarterback who is better than Colin Kaepernick, or at least has more potential to lead your team to a couple of late season victories than, than Kaepernick himself.
2: And I think if we were to, to extend this to, and torture this uh, curse of Kaepernick metaphor a little bit further, we would say that. I mean, the other thing that Goodell has to kind of answer for. I mean, notably the New York Times, uh, the New Orleans Times Picayune, you know, has this headline today that just Super Bowl, what Super Bowl, with a lot of blank space around it. Uh, and um, you know there is uh, this sense that pervaded the Super Bowl this year, in particular about the Rams, that the wrong team was there. You know, I mean that w- I, one thing that I've discovered is the most incredible expression of human agape, of just you know love of one's fellow human, is to go up to a New Orleans Saints fan fan and say. I am really sorry. Your team should be in the Super Bowl. And they just fall into your arms sobbing, you know, because they've been up in their room sobbing for days. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I, and I don't know exactly what Goodell said about this, but there's this feeling from the beginning of the season when Clay Matthews was getting these weird roughing the quarterback calls for what seemed like pretty normal hits to the end where kind of the wrong team got in, that there was also an especially accursed flavor to the offici- officiating. <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, it will not surprise you that Roger Goodell was not exactly open and transparent right. uh, about the officiating <laughs> this week in Atlanta. But, you know, it's funny with that one because I always think there's sort of two groups of NFL controversies that we sometimes mix kind of mix together. One is the head trauma and Colin Kaepernick, which are actually seemingly existential, you know, this rips at the heart of my interest in football kind of question. Mm-hmm. And then there are some stuff like the referees, which we could imagine fitting into the former group, but I think as they get processed by talk shows on ESPN, wind up just accruing a lot more interest in it, right? Because then it's, oh, the, next year it'll be, oh, the Saints are on the revenge tour, right? Or, you know, oh, the Saints are so mad and the Rams are here. And it just, it just winds up, to me, sort of accidentally fueling more interest or at least more hours of talk in the NFL than actually kind of undermining our our interest in the product, as it were.
2: Right. And that, of course, is one of the marketable byproducts of the NFL, is talk about the NFL. <laughs> talk about
3: the nfl and how bad the nfl is and yet we still watch we right. still
2: watch absolutely well brian curtis it's always a joy to talk to you i encourage people to find your work uh, in the ringer especially your romomania piece which is all the more on point i think after last night betsy kaplan's surliness about it notwithstanding uh and as the host of the press box podcast thanks for being with me today
3: Thanks as always, Colin.
2: All right. Uh, great to visit with Brian. And now we're going to ask uh, you to visit with some other people uh, if you enjoyed a conversation like this one, which I feel like is a little different from not that you would be listening to some kind of hot takes, you know, sports radio thing anyway, if you're listening to this. But, uh, you know, some thoughtful conversation about something that everybody talks about a lot. and Maybe we find some things to talk about that are have a little bit more deep thematic. St- I don't know. I'm making a false case. Just support the damn show. <laughs> the people are going to come on, and they're going to ask you to make a pledge to the station. It really helps us a lot if you—boy, uh, did that fall apart as an argument. If you if, But if you support while we're on the air, it helps us out, and obviously it helps the station out if you support at all. So when these people ask you to make a pledge, please, pretty please, make a pledge.
0: New England is the craziest, and this week I'm rooting for the Patriots, uh. Hey, it's Kyone Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in. And also, please help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate.
1: And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 (laughs) seconds, maybe 50 seconds, Mm -hmm. unlike five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're (laughs) speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at wnpr.org.
0: I know there's that whole thing that goes, there's four hours of my life I'll never get back again, but seriously, is there somebody I could talk to about getting those four hours of my life back? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, and Wolf. It's a simultaneous birthday of producers Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants, so Amanda Fish took the day off. The part of Bill Curry was played by Big Boy. On tomorrow's show, opera is way cooler than you think. And now back to
2: calling. Yeah. First of all, uh, before I say the next thing, let me just say um, Brian has gone off to do important things. uh, And so for about 15 minutes, I'm here with no guests and I would love to take your phone calls. If you had a thing you wanted to say, about last night's Super Bowl or Gladys Knight's national anthem or the halftime show or the commercials or anything like that uh, or or the game itself, who knows? You might have something to say. Um, Please give us a call. If if not, I can sort of switch topics, but I'm actually less interested in the other topic than uh, I am in this one. So if you have something you'd like to say, 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. We didn't talk about Gladys Knight yet, so that's like something. Uh, and yeah, happy to say more about the halftime show. Didn't really talk about the commercials that much. For me, the Indy Warhol one is the one that's kind of standing out. But So we'll, I'll come back to that in a second. I just do want to say that one of the commercials last night we have established it was for Mercedes-Benz. In, in, in the way that Super Bowl commercials often do... Uh, they don't always seem to have a really clear point that they're making, but it was a commercial for Mercedes-Benz and there was this guy who was walking around doing mostly good things, like you know, lost cat, he'd say, find the cat, the cat would turn up, you know, it was a lot of that kind of thing, you know, making sort of good things happen just by saying, make them happen. Um, and But at one point, he's sitting uh, in an opera, uh, I mean, in the audience uh, of an opera, and he doesn't like the opera. He says, Change the music and he and he does and it changes into ludicrous. I mean not the adjective but the actual rapper. And I found myself thinking, well, that's kind of a jerky thing to do. Everybody else was there to see the opera. They're not there to see Ludacris. You know, that's not nice. And also, it's kind of obviously a slight on opera. And one of the things that uh, you're going to hear in tomorrow's show, if you listen, is there's so many interesting things going on with opera, so many ways. I mean, you can make the argument, and it does get made in this particular show, that Hamilton is an opera. But there's so many exciting things going on in opera that to kind of, you know, set it in amber uh, as, you know, one performance of Rigoletto or something is to really miss the point of what os- of what o- opera can be and what opera is these days. So anyway, that is to come. Um, and while we're getting the calls uh, piled up here uh, and they are coming in, by the way, 860-275-7266. That's really good. It might mean that I don't have to talk about Ralph Northam, which I really don't want to talk about, but I can. I will if things get slow. But um. whatever you want to say about the Super Bowl and its attendant hoopla. I also just want to quickly say, and I've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. Is this the last time I'm going to be live on the air? I think it might be. (laughs) I mean, not like forever. but um, uh, So on Wednesday, theoretically, although I keep thinking, I keep doing this magical thinking that they're going to say, you know what, it turns out you don't need knee surgery. I don't know what we were thinking, but your knees are fine. You don't have to have a knee replacement. But that's probably not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which means tomorrow i 'm going across the street i mean wednesday i 'll be go across the street at St. Francis, and I will be having my knee replaced or whatever that means and i 'm told it takes a little while uh, that you know, in the words of Duke Ellington you don 't get around much for a while uh and so as a result we re- we are recording some shows which we already know are really good and interesting uh elaine pagel's the the renowned uh, writer on religion and the Gnostic Gospels and stuff. We had have a terrific conversation with her. She was just so great And it. Darko Treznik, kind of an exit interview as the artistic director of the stage company. Also a great conversation. Even if you, you think you know what he thinks, I think you'll be surprised by a lot of what he says. And there's other stuff. A show about the American Revolution, a show about grammar. And at some point during my absence... We're going to do an episode of The Nose. We are not going to do an episode of The Nose. They are going to do an episode of The Nose in New Haven, our cultural roundtable. But it will be hosted by the uh, Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine of New Haven. Uh, That's Lucy Gelman and Tom Breen, although I guess I got the genders reversed. All right. Time uh, to go to the phones here. As I say, our number 860-275-7266. It's a lot of dudes here. I hope we get some women calling up. Uh, Here's Adam in Stamford. Hi, Adam. You're on the air.
4: Hi. How are you? Good. So uh, I wanted to talk about the halftime show. Yes. I just had a thought last night, and, you know, I feel like the music that might relate more to football culture, be it hip-hop, rap, or arena rock, I feel Mm -hmm. like that's going to be something of the past. Mm -hmm. I feel like the music that they look for is basically to entertain the people who don't like football. Those mm. of whom go to the parties and watch the halftime or watch the halftime show and the commercials and that's about it. So, you know, if you're looking for some more grandiose type music, you're probably not going to see it. It's mostly going to be stuff that even myself as a 28-year-old mm. I'm unaware of who these artists are. I do not know who Cardi B is. Yeah. And I feel like I should, but I don't. So if she performed the other night, I would probably be disinterested.
2: Were you interested in Matchbox? I mean, in Maroon.
4: Um, up not up. really. Yeah. Uh, their music to me hasn't been popular since I was in middle school. Right. And I feel like I've heard kind of the same songs over and over. So right. I, really, I didn't feel like it really matched uh, you know, the kind of scene that I would imagine in football. But again, if people who don't like football were entertained, I feel like at this point, the halftime show to his job.
2: Right. Well, although I I also feel part of what we're what I'm hearing and what you say, Adam, also is our musical preferences have become more segmented and balkanized than ever before. I mean, if you're 28 years old and you don't really have any relationship with Cardi B, you know, that's sort of an amazing thing all by itself. But you also don't have any relationship with Maroon 5. And I I, but I, I think you're not unusual. I think what's happened now is everybody has a bunch of Spotify or in my case, Tidal playlists you know that has all the stuff that they like and the stuff that they have a relationship with and it's radically different from person to person it's not just an intergenerational problem uh, or socioeconomic or race or gender it's like everything right you can tailor your musical experience to be exactly what you want it to be you know and yeah the, ha- I agree. Yeah, and the halftime show is by by necessity not that you know i mean the, the halftime show Is like water seeking a level of that where it can be at rest. (laughs) So, um, so you know, in a world, I mean, I don't, I I don't believe Adam anyway. I mean, he knows something about Cardi B. Cardi B is now like, you know, basically in the water supply. You just have a drink of water, you know, something about Cardi B. All right, here's Stephen in stores. Hi, Stephen, you're on the air.
3: Um, Hi. I'm driving to a parking garage now, so I hope it doesn't cut out. No, but it does lend uh, a
2: a quality of excitement to this whole conversation.
3: (laughs) Okay, yeah, good. Good Um, uh, good luck on your knee. Um, But uh, I wanted to say something about the same topic, about why they chose Maroon 5. I don't think it's as naive as we think, because they've been trying to globalize the Super Bowl for quite a while.
0: Mm -hmm. And I
3: think Maroon 5 is a lot more popular internationally than it is here, because it is really old here. Yeah. Europe and stuff they're always late, so I think there's that and um <laughs> the other thing was uh I heard a good joke, an old twitter thing it was a it was a, um maroon five rams three.
2: <laughs> That's not bad. Okay. Uh, all right. Thanks for that. Good luck of finding the parking space. I guess one thing I would say with that, I'm going to just put them on hold. Uh, by the way, we've got we've got open lines here. The number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. I saw it a little bit differently. First of all, I don't, I don't know if Europe's always late. I mean, Europe has like its own stuff going on. But but I do think that what the Super Bowl is, and the Super Bowl halftime show is is first and foremost, quite obviously, a television event. It's something that is on television, um, and just in the same sense that we now have a president who we used to see on television, like it's like, oh yeah, that guy, he's on television. <laughs> Let's make him president. Um, you know, I mean, Adam Levine is on The Voice. I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure which one it is actually, but he's on one of those shows anyway. You know, so he's somebody who with whom. You could become familiar without being part of the Maroon 5 target demo, and that sort of makes him attractive as a possible, you know. So, I mean, it's kind of like, oh, that guy. Yeah, I've seen him with Christina Aguilera or whatever on whatever show that is. I'm almost 100% sure it's The Voice. But anyway, let's go to Mac in Washington. Oh, we're not going to go to Mac. Mac hung up. Oh, no, no. Uh, Our number, 860-275-7266. Let me just say one more thing while uh, we've got a few more phone calls kind of queuing up here. Um, 860-275-7266. That's the number to call. We'll get you up on the board here. Uh And I'm being told, yes, it is the voice. So there's, I think, if there's kind of a feeling of emptiness today post-Super Bowl. First of all, there's always a feeling of emptiness post-Super Bowl, right? There's a certain, you know... <laughs> <laughs> there's, a sort of, there's sort of the football media snack food equivalent of a post-coital depression uh, after the Super Bowl. Uh, and, but it's worse than usual, and I think part of it is also we're very hungry for change. Janet, hang in there. I'm going to get to you right now. We're very hungry for things to change. We want the weather to change. We want the White House to change. We want all kinds of things to change, And so and, and we seek change now. And so, what happened last night? Well, sort of this, you know, this established stasis triumphed over dynamism, right? And age triumphed over youth. This really old quarterback beat this really young quarterback. This really old coach beat this really young coach, you know. And, and to whatever extent we wanted to see the, the settled order of things, which would be embodied by and epitomized by the New England Patriots, see them overturned, that did not happen. And it makes makes us think nothing else is going to change either. And as I say, you know, Groundhog Day is basically just a codification of our desire for, for change in the weather. And the Super Bowl happens close to Groundhog Day partly because that's the way the football season goes and it kind of has to be right there. But I don't think it's just that. I think the two things have something to do with one another. Here's Janet, though. Hi, Janet. You're on the air.
1: Hey. Hi, Colin. How hi. are you? I'm good. That's Good. Hey, just a comment. I watched the Super Bowl. It was mm. a little disappointing, but that's okay, you know. Yeah. Um, so the halftime show, I you know, I think there have been a lot of really good acts that are that are popular, powerful musical acts. Last night, I do like Maroon 5. I like Adam Levine. They seemed a little weak. Um, but the one part I think was nice was they had a drum line. Yes. <laughs> um, and then they had a choir. Right. Um so I think what would be really cool moving forward is when they have the Super Bowl is to try to recruit local colleges or local high schools to do more of represent the community, um, and then kind of supplemented by a a musical act.
2: Right, I, I I I agree. I mean, I there are people on social media and and also just writing uh, today saying, you know, a drumline and a choir is kind of almost sort of a default. If you want to kind of take the stink off what you're doing and have it seem a little less obviously white and, you know, you get a drum line, you get a choir and and there's certainly been other. And it's always great. I mean, for, for example, you know, as I recall, I don't remember everything about Beyonce's, you know, big kind of rollout of. Um, of her new kind of lemonade sound and stuff like that, uh, and visual presentation in, in that particular Super Bowl. But I remember quite a bit of that kind of stuff. You know that there was, if not a drum line, there certainly was this you know huge dance ensemble and this really sense of of real production and and, and excitement. And I yeah. agree that that doing that is always a good idea, and getting the community more involved is always a good idea. And maybe they just have to rethink the halftime show paradigm, too. Maybe Carmen Della is right, and they should just do something like perform all the nominated best movie songs, best Oscar best songs from a movie uh, nominees. Yeah. Although that's probably not on CBS, and they just they get upset. You know, I mean, everything gets ruined somehow. <laughs> And there you go. There you go. See, now I wanted to be uplifting, and I just said something very unuplifting. All right. So that was Janet, though, and she was very nice. And uh, for other people who called up, we're kind of running out of time. I think I need to wind this down. So let me just quickly say once again that we've got all kinds of exciting stuff coming for you, starting Soon, we're going to be, we, we have been recording and continue to record these extra shows for while I'm out, recovering from my total knee replacement or whatever it's called. Uh, and it, like the stuff that we've got already, we're really excited about. It's really good. Uh, and I think we are going to get at least one more of those things done in the next day or so. So get ready for all of that. And um, and now, right now, people are going to come on the radio, nice people who mean you no harm, and ask you this is just like a little five day pledge drive we're doing I think so it's Monday through Friday as far as I know and um, you know if you'd be willing to give and if you'd be willing to give in our little slot here it does really help us and it, it's your way of sort of saying that you, You really like this particular kind of show. You like a show like this one. You like having it here. uh, And you support it, and so it does stay here. I think I've made myself clear. Thanks, and happy birthday once again. It's sort of weird. The two full-time producers of this show, we have many people who work on this show, but the people who are full-time producing episodes, they have the same birthday. That's strange. But happy birthday to them.